welcome to the Nerd Party. Welcome, fellow Cantina patrons, to Great Shot Kid, the podcast on the Nerd Party Network that examines the work of Star Wars creators both within and outside the Star Wars galaxy. I am one of your hosts, John. And I'm Mike. And we are this week going to be bringing you, uh, we're, we're starting a series this week looking at the work of the editors of the original Star Wars. And uh, there were three um, credited editors on uh, on that film. And so we're going to be looking at the work of those editors, uh, you know, around the same time period, essentially. And uh, so this week we're going to be starting with The Conversation uh, which was edited by Richard Chu uh, for Francis Ford Coppola. It was released in 1974, and it is starring Gene Hackman. Uh, and you know what, Mike? What? Why don't you let everybody know what the film is about? The conversation is about a guy who is the best wiretapper or, you know, bugger or whatever you want to call surveillance him. professional there you go surveillance technician that's what they, they yes. call them on on the west coast you know maybe in the country you know and he's played by gene hackman and it starts off with him uh doing a very very complex recording of two people who are having a conversation in a crowded park you know where they're they're walking around and he's using multiple microphones in order to to record this conversation and for for a client and as he listens to the the conversation he realizes that he's maybe in over his head and maybe the existence of this recording could be responsible for these people's murders and hijinks right. ensue. Yes, they do. They do. Uh, it is. It's very interesting because um, the conversation is a film that I had heard about. I've heard about for many, many years, uh, and was you know when I was taking a, a film as literature course, um, there was another course that was running parallel that a friend of mine was taking, and they watched this in there, and he had a problem with some of the stuff the professor said. I never doubled back around to it. And I've intended for many, many, many years to watch this because I've heard it referenced many times. And uh, there's a, a book that that you got me about conversations with Walter Murch where he discusses it um, and, uh, you know, it really piqued my interest. So I think it's really great that that we got the opportunity to come in and, and, and talk about this one and finally see it. Now, for anybody who um, hasn't seen it, this is I would I would venture to say that I knew the ending of this film because of that book, before I watched it. And everybody gets all uptight about spoilers. This is a film that cannot be ruined by spoilers because it is about so much more than just what's going on on screen. Yeah, I mean, and I mean, it's hard to talk about this movie without talking about the ending, but I would say that we could do our best to sort of talk about what happens without actually saying what happens yes. because there is a twist. However, you know, if you haven't seen the movie, 
I would highly recommend watching the movie maybe before listening to this conversation. Hey. Hey. And then coming back and listening to this conversation. And, and yes, and you're in luck because if you have Amazon Prime, this is included in the service right now. So you don't have to pay an extra rental fee to watch this. This is just out there for your consumption at this point. Yeah. And and spoilers for our conversation. I think we're both in agreement that that this movie is well worth watching, yes. and uh, you should see it. You should definitely see it. Absolutely, and uh, you know, one of the things after after I was done watching it was thinking of it in terms of the editing. What's yeah. so fascinating? What I what I think really speaks to an editor's skill, and I think that. I think that editing is one of those things that is very easily overlooked uh, with film. People can talk about it. People can talk about how Lucas loves to edit film or Lucas was there in the booth with everybody, you know, with the Star Wars films. Everybody knows that his philosophy of making a movie was just go out, shoot as much as you can, and then I'm going to shape it in the editing booth, which is which is fine. I'm not criticizing that at all. Like, you know, you can, you can make something special and wonderful happen, uh, especially, you know, playing with sounds and stuff like that. But... I think that a real challenge with a film like The Conversation is the fact that the pivotal moment occurs in the very beginning and you revisit it. As the plot continues to move following uh, you know, Hackman, you keep coming back to the same thing. And I would think that it would be a tremendous challenge as an editor to sit there and figure out how to keep it so that the audience doesn't get bored every time they go back to that conversation. Figuring out, okay, we're coming back at it, and every time in this film you come back and you listen to the conversation again, you see the, you know, the, the part of the tape that he is going over again and figuring out the alternate takes, the different angles that convey everything that's happening without making it seem stale. Like they don't, they don't just re show the same thing over and over again. They show a little bit longer take or a little bit different angle on things. And I would think that that very much speaks to the fact that the editor sat there and said, how am I going to do this? Like in concept, I know what I'm going to do. How am I going to make it so that the third time we come back to this conversation, the audience isn't saying, eh, okay, I've seen this before. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, one of the, the interesting things is, I mean, like if you look at the credits, Walter Murch is, is credited as the supervising editor, and that's mm-hmm. a thing that you see in the 70s a lot, and I don't exactly know what it means or how it breaks down, but I get the impression that, you know, he edited a substantial amount of the movie, maybe more than, than Richard Chu, you know, he gets a much larger credit than Richard Chu, and this was, I, if I'm not mistaken, the first movie that he edited picture for, because he was up until now, known as a sound editor. And that right. was that was one of the reasons why Coppola chose him to do this movie, because, you know, this movie was is all about sound. And and I think one of the interesting things that you see uh in regards to uh the the way that this conversation uh is is replayed throughout the movie is it's always replayed with an ear for the sound and with like yeah. more information or different information being revealed, uh, which gives you insight into, you know, what they're talking about. And I think that the the picture reflects that. 
you know mm-hmm. the the way that the 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 movie is shot the way that that scene is shot is with you know these extremely long you know telephoto lenses from very very far away you know which give you a sense of you know spying on these people uh yeah. and that's how the sound is is you know recorded as well or at least that's the, the idea behind you know the recording that that harry call is 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 making you know so so the the visuals are a reflection of the sound you know yeah. it, it kind of informs what you're hearing in a sense sure sure which is, is really interesting and i and yeah. i think that that the way that it's constructed you know like you're saying because most of the time when they are replaying those things he's replaying them audibly you know he's sitting in his in his studio or whatever it is his workplace and he's listening to the conversation and as he's listening to it he's replaying the events in his mind and what we're seeing on screen is what he's thinking yeah and it, it and it's it's really interesting because one of the things that the the plot hinges on is cleaning up a certain piece of the audio that's garbled yeah and you you find out through his cleaning up of it that he's a real innovator. He built you know he builds all his own equipment. He he doesn't farm things out. He has figured out he's done what nobody else can do. And that you know and you know that that's reinforced by the story that one of his friendly competitors uh, has. Nobody can figure out how he recorded this one conversation that brought down. Uh, you know th- this union boss in a pension scheme, yeah. and it it is a really interesting visual, uh, you know, visual accompaniment to to what's going on. You know, w- with him replaying things, you know, in his mind. There's a, there's an interesting echo of it on a, on a smaller scale, I think, in uh, when he is alone talking in the the desolate part of his warehouse floor with uh with the woman in the green dress what i what i noticed what i thought was amazing and you know i know that the filmmaker got these takes and i know that they you know they work closely with the editor and everything but what really struck me about it was during the conversation when he opens up when he you know talks about his fears about what he's doing the camera starts behind him and then it pans around and it comes around you know to show his face while he's talking to her and it stays there while she's giving her her feedback to him and then it cuts back and it's back at over his shoulder and then it comes back and it does it three times so you get this very real sense because his whole thing through this whole film is that he is afraid that he is going to you know repeat a mistake that led to death in the past and here he is in a similar situation and it's this feeling through this whole scene of replaying this is something he's been afraid of before. It's a loop he cannot escape because of the nature of what it is that he does. And it, I think it's so fascinating that you you look at a film like this and I, re- I really looked at it through the lens of I, I don't think people understood how special what was happening in the 1970s was. What we have now in terms of you know the the blockbuster structure and everything is much more evocative of the big you know Cleopatra and Wizard of Oz the you know the the big showy blockbusters of yesteryear and in the 70s you have a movie like this which is such an intense and small and innovative in a lot of ways film 
And it, it like it just that one sequence there where I, I said, you know, you can take this one moment from the film and it conveys everything about one of the major themes of it that's happening. And I, I think that is that's such an interesting, you know, film lesson, basically, to sit to sit there and watch that happen. Yeah, I mean, it's true that they don't really make movies like this anymore. These movies which are designed for adults to go see, you know, and everything. But I think what we're seeing, which I mean, I'm I'm totally okay with, is that sort of genre, the conversation genre, has sort of just moved off into another medium, which is television. You know, and instead of getting these things on the big screen, we're getting things like Breaking Bad, which we talked about last week, you know, right. which is every bit as innovative as the conversation is, you know. So I, I, sure. I don't think I don't think it's lost. I think it's just changed, you know, which is, you know, I'm OK with. But that's you no, know, no. I mean, that that's a completely fair point. I mean, argu- arguably, because the, the version that's on Amazon Prime is the 2000 remaster. Where they went back and they remixed it for stereo because yeah. mono track from 1974 doesn't sound good on modern, you know, sound systems. Yeah, or it's just not what people are expecting necessarily. And you know, normally I'm violently opposed to these remixes, you know, mm-hmm. especially for a movie like this, which is all about the sound. But this was a case where uh, Francis Ford Coppola, who does a lot of stuff in house in in terms of like his his home video things. Um, you know, supervised the entire thing. I, I'm pretty sure Walter Murch remixed it himself. So, yes, he did. Okay. So, okay, if Walter Murch is going to remix the movie in stereo, then I'm going to, you know, assume that he's going to treat it with tender, loving care, you know, unlike some remixes which are questionable, even if the intentions are the best. I'm I'm looking at you, Vertigo and Martin Scorsese. Um <laughs> That remix, yeah. that remix is a disaster, and you know whatever. But uh, I don't know. It's, it's call it a disaster. Freaking yeah. terrible! It is the worst thing ever. It is. It is the special edition of of sound <laughs> remixes. No, I mean no lie. Perfect analogy. It's terrible. Well, well, okay. The 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 no, but but the thing is with the with the sound. I mean, you know, as long as we're talking about it, what what I find interesting. Is Star Wars has had its own problem with these, you know, the, the home video releases, but also with the the mono versus stereo mixes, because the in '77 they had two different mixes of of the soundtrack. Probably, um, probably more than that. I think they had three, if I'm not mistaken. Okay, at, at least. but 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 they yeah. definitely they definitely had a stereo, which actually had more lines than because there was more time to work on it. So well, uh, it was it was it was actually in reverse. Um, the, oh really? The because they had to make the seventy millimeter prints first, right? So yeah. that was the the four track surround sound, you know, on the seventy millimeter prints. Then you had stereo on thirty five millimeter, which was actually surround sound. It was Dolby stereo, which today we think of as Dolby surround or Dolby Pro Logic. I think, okay. if I'm not mistaken, Star Wars was the first movie to do that. Um, so that was the second one that came out and that was modified slightly and had a little a few things and the mono releases which were done for like the second run theaters the worn down places that you know you put the movie in after it's played at all of the movie palaces that was the last thing that they did because they didn't need that right away and that 
essentially okay. makes it the most complete version. I, I'm pretty sure that uh, Lucas and, and Ben Bird have talked about this. Like, you know, obviously Lucas loves surround sound and everything, but if you're just looking at like the contents of the track, the mono mix is the quote unquote definitive soundtrack. And see, that's that's so that's so fascinating to me because I know that on you know there there are differences, including three PO having an extra line about a loss of one of the power terminals will yeah. allow the ship to leave, mm-hmm. uh, which you know just jumps out at you like it, you know like it's going along and you can tell that it was recorded in a closet somewhere yep. afterward. <laughs> yes, like it's just you know duh, like it, it just jumps out at you. Um, but you know, in, in this context, merch. You know, Richard Chu edits Star Wars. He's one of the editors on Star Wars. Yes. Merch is an inarguable heavy influence on Lucas, especially yeah. and, sound and wise. A, a valued collaborator in their in their early days. I mean, he co-wrote THX one one three eight with him. Right, and actually, THX one one three eight four EB Electronic Labyrinth was based on a discarded script from Merch. Like Lucas took it and turned it into his student film. Yeah, and uh, and and. What what's fascinating to me about it is with those type of sound issues, why would he not have brought merch in on Star Wars? I'm wondering how much of it was just like scheduling or something, you know? I mean, yeah. because they had worked together on THX 1138. They had worked together right. on um, American Graffiti. But I mean, like, well, let's see. What was what was merch up to at this particular point in time? Um, well, oh. This is what he was up to. <laughs> he was knee deep in apocalypse now, right? <laughs> oh well, okay. Yeah, right. I mean, he had that. Yeah, maybe he's like, oh yeah, I'll just edit this this movie for Francis, and then I'll come over here and do the sound for your Star Wars movie. And you know, three years later, <laughs> he's still editing. You know, apocalypse now. So My there you God. go. Three years later, they're still <laughs> shooting apocalypse now. Yep, uh, yep. But you know, I think that's so. I think that's so interesting though, because if you you know, if you look at that with with Apocalypse Now and everything, would would you be looking at? I, I mean, I I can't help but imagine how different would Star Wars have been because Richard Chu, based you know in, in the stuff that I have read, is uh you know in later days now credited with essentially saving the ending of Star Wars, where okay. it was much more like the ending of THX one one three eight with the car chase, mm-hmm. where it's very dry and there you know there's almost like a, a bifurcated feeling between things and Richard Chu is the one that said no, I got this I can figure this out do you think that there there's a pot I mean you know who knows I mean pure speculation but you could almost make an argument that Richard Chu coming off of working with merch sees what Lucas has assembled and says no 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 I, I okay I got this I know I know how this could work let me get let me sit down with Bert and I, I can figure out how to make things because the original cut of it, if I remember clearly, there was like no um, audio back chatter mm-hmm. uh, when, when they were in the in the in the conference room in Yavin with, with the ships going you know by and everything. And so Richard Chu and Ben Burt are the ones that recut it and had a lot of the the sound overlaying so that you hear the chatter from the fighters while they're in the conference room cutting to the fighters and you know, and that sort of thing. Because if you notice through that entire thing, and it's it's easy to overlook, especially the first couple of times you watch it, nobody in that conference room says anything. Yeah. yeah. They're completely mute through that entire sequence, but it feels like they're participating in everything that's happening. Mm-hmm. 
So I, I think that's really, you know, is it possible that that Chu working with Merch figures out a way to make that ending work because of the sound montage that he's seen going on with stuff like the conversation? Yeah, I mean, that could be, you know, I mean, all those guys were connected, you know, all those, you know, San Francisco filmmakers and everything. And, you know, I, I it wouldn't surprise me if either Merch or Coppola, you know, were, you know, had a conversation with Lucas and Lucas was looking for someone to help out. And they were like, you should get this guy Richard Chu, you know, he, yeah. he's, he's he's got he's got some talent here. And yeah, I mean, that wouldn't surprise me at all, you know. Yeah, I mean, especially with the fact that, you know. I think also in the in the aftermath of the explosive popularity of Star Wars, I think the people it's easy to lose sight of the fact that it was very experimental, that it, there were a lot of risks taken and that that San Francisco art house scene very much informed the final product that came out. Mm-hmm. And it, it wasn't it wasn't that they put it together and said this is going to make a bajillion dollars and become a cultural phenomenon. They said, well, this is our cute little homage to, you know, Flash Gordon. And, you know, some people will probably like it a whole lot. And then, you know, boom, there, you know, like it, it, it literally is lightning in a bottle. Yeah. Like it, you, you, could, you can look at the conversation and you can say this, this is the art house film. This, yeah. this is an art house film. This is the type of movie that you expect to see at a small theater, you know, for me in uh, in Sherlington. Um, which is Northern Virginia. And, and you know, the, there was a little theater there, you know, where the screen is basically the size of the TVs that we get now. But, you know, you go see document, you see, you go see hot documentaries when you're a hipster at a movie theater like this. And the people that made that make Star Wars, you know, when Richard Chu comes from that and is informed by that and, you know, helps essentially shape, like it, it all reshapes everything. So in a sense, the conversation contributes and there it's Richard Chu is not the only Star Wars connection I think it very much bears mentioning that Harrison Ford is in this in a very prominent role yeah it's not like just a little cameo like in you know uh, Apocalypse Now I mean this was a substantial role and what it's the year after American Graffiti so Coppola having produced that is obviously familiar with him and you know puts him in this and it it, it totally works right but what's amazing to me, because, you know, part of the myth about Ford being involved in Star Wars, and, you know, I'm sure this is true, is that he, he couldn't get work. He was working as a carpenter to make ends meet, you know, and he, he winds up getting pulled into Star Wars because they needed to complete one of their groups of three to do the readings. He wasn't even really under consideration for Han Solo, even though Lucas had worked with him on American Graffiti. But, I mean, this is... Nobody ever mentions that he was in the conversation. Like... I saw him in the credits and I was like, oh, and I figured he was going to be, you know, a small role like Apocalypse Now. But he plays a pivotal role in this film. Yeah. And I it, it was kind of mind blowing. because I'm like, why, why does anybody ever mention that he's in this? Yeah. It, this it, was an Oscar nominated film. It was an Oscar nominated film. And I mean, that's something which is kind of interesting, too, is that it's very interesting. You know, Francis Ford Coppola made two movies in 1974, both of them got nominated for Best Picture, this and The Godfather Part Two. He made those With, in the same yeah. year, you know? That's kind of... Well, yeah, because uh, Merch, Merch talked about uh, he was off doing 
work on Godfather Part Two during the conversation and basically said to Merch, she was like, "Yeah, I trust you. I'll come in and check in on on the sound mix." Um, yeah, but yeah, I mean, it's kind of brain melting to think that between 1972 and 1974, Coppola releases The Godfather, The Conversation, and The Godfather Part Two. And while The Conversation might not be as showy as The Godfather Part Two, and I, I, showy is sort of like a, has a negative connotation, but I mean it in terms of like, you watch Godfather Two, and you know, you walk out and you tell everybody, oh my gosh, I just saw Godfather Part Two. The Conversation kind of gets put in the margin there and i think that's a you know a large sense of crime because even if coppola had just done this like and never done godfather part two you still talk about him as a wow look at what that guy did like it, it's 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 mind-numbing to think that that two phenomenal films both not you know everybody forgets who else was nominated for the oscar and it's like i think the conversation highlights how that's that's really a crime in a lot of cases. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this this is you know, it, it, for most filmmakers, this would be like the crowning achievement of their career. And for Coppola, it's not even the best movie he made that year. <laughs> you know? That's just crazy. Yep. yep. That it, it, I can't even I can't even wrap my head around that one because yeah. it's just so insane that. You know, th- this was just him doing something as a palate cleanser, so he wouldn't go straight into the Godfather sequel. Yeah, yeah, it's it's insane, it, but it works really well. You know, there's it something. Uh, this is because uh, you know this is something which you know this is a movie which we studied in film school. You know, for you know uh, forever. And I had one one professor who was you know one uh, probably the the best professor that I had there, and and he he did a million things, and he's still doing stuff. And he loved this movie with a passion and got, I think, maybe a little too into it. I mean, he's pointing at things and saying, like, you see how you can see through his uh, his raincoat? That's very intentional because it means this. And so some of it I'm just like, nah, you, that's you, that, no, that's not accurate, but whatever. But I was going to say it's funny you say that because I, I, rem- I have a very specific memory because I talked about how my friend was in the you know, film as literature course that 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 watched this uh, that was in parallel to mine and he we had it was the same professor different class and the and uh i remember my friend saying that the 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 professor said during you know their analysis of it he said oh and that scene where you know where he sits down and he replays it on the laser disc because there's a scene early in the movie where he finds out that his landlady has left a, a bottle of wine in his apartment and he's like he calls her to say how did you get into the apartment you know why do you have another key i did you know and while he's there taking his pants off, talking to her, in the background is a crane working on a construction project. And I remember my friend being very skeptical because the professor made a big deal of it, talking about how, you know, this is this shows that he's a person under construction and he's not quite working well. And, you know, there's a lot of wreckage behind him. And I remember my friend coming out of the class and relaying that to me and looking at me and saying, Maybe they were just having construction in San Francisco that day. And yeah. I was like, you know, I could argue either point of this, but okay, whatever. Like, you know, they could have waited to shoot the scene, but at the same time, are you making too much of that? You know? 
Yeah, I know. It's and that's you know that's what I mean. Film school is just filled with with stuff like that, and sometimes it just makes me roll my eyes and be like, "Oh my god!" But then you know the other thing, the the flip side of that is is Robert Altman, who you know like you read interviews with him and people will bring up things like that and say, "Was that intentional?" And he's like, "Sure." He's like, I, you know, it doesn't matter, you know, whether I intended it or whether I didn't or whatever, that's what you got out of it. And that doesn't yeah. make it any less valid. You know, that's what's there. That's what's in the movie. How you interpret it is not up to me. It's up to you. So. And, 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 I, and I think that's a great point to make, because that is one of the reasons that I hate commentary tracks uh, <laughs> from from directors. No, I, I love commentary tracks in general. But when the director talks about what something means, you know, like li- listening to um, Lucas do a commentary track, like on Attack of the Clones, he gets so obsessed about like how the effects put together and stuff like that stuff. I'm all on board. I love hearing about how things came together. I love hearing about the technical stuff. But if a director is sitting there and if Coppola was sitting there saying, well, you know, the, the construction crane in the back is, you know, indicating this, it's like, let me bring a little bit. And that that's why like I like I'm giving credit to Altman here because it you know, I think that's the proper for lack of a better term, proper response of like, well, did you get that? Cool. Uh, I mean that's I, awesome. I see what you're saying, but at the same time, I mean, like oh, taking Altman again as an example, like if you listen to his commentary on the original criterion laser disc for the player he does that. He's like, in this scene, you can see that the the fire is representative of the blah, 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 blah. And I'm watching this, and he's saying, like, well, I did this because of this, and, and breaking down the entire movie, and I'm just like, wow, this guy's working on another level. You know, I mean, it's... And then you listen to the commentary that he did a few years later for the DVD, and he's like, uh, once I cast the movie, 95% of my job is done, and all I have to do is sit back and watch. And and then that's basically like the 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 approach that he takes to the entire commentary. He's like, "Oh, this is a cool scene. Look at what uh, you know Tim Robbins did here. That was funny, you know, whatever." And he's like, "I don't know what I'm doing. I don't remember what the script was. The script was you know basically nothing, and I just told them to do whatever they want, and that's what they did, you know. And that's like kind of like what he he says in his second commentary. But you know, I don't know. I like hearing like the reason why choices are made." You know, even even if, you know, whatever, I, I, I mean, I, I want to see the movie before I hear that stuff. But then, you know, like you look at that or like what Paul Thomas Anderson did on Boogie Nights or whatever. And it's just to me, it's absolutely fascinating. And it gives me a much greater appreciation for the product because I see that, you know, the crane was not an accident. You know, it was there intentional, intentionally. And when I see that, I'm just like, oh, wow, you know, like every little piece of this was thought out, you know, so precisely that, you know, it really shows how much, you know, love was was put into the the finished product. But see the thing is I I think that with a with a piece of art you're looking at something where they showed up and they said we're going to shoot this and we're here in this apartment and there's a crane and they're doing construction in the background and somebody says, "Well, do we want to shoot later?" and then Coppola says, "No, you know what?" No, I, I like what this could mean for the character, the stage that he's at, and it's going to indicate something that has to do with the ending because something happens at the ending having to do with construction. Spoilers. <laughs> Minor spoiler. You're not going to understand that unless you watch the movie. But, you know, so something happens with that. So you could take it as an echo, but it's an artist in the moment 
it's not a planned thing. It's an artist in the moment saying, you know what? That could work. And I think that is that is something that makes a lot of the stuff in the 1970s. And I think that's what makes a lot of stuff for editors in specific hard work uh, in a lot of ways is when a director gets a sudden inspiration like that. They have to make sure that they're staying true to things. And also, I mean, it would be fair to say that sitting in the editing booth, Richard Chu and Walter Murch have to be willing to push back to a certain extent and say, look, I know you got these two takes, but this is the one that really like isn't an editor going to have the opportunity to sort of like be a head check for the director. Yeah, I mean, I think that's more than anything what an editor's job is, you know, and this is something which I've, I've, you know, thought, you know, very, very passionately about, you know, I think that, you know, directors who edit their own movies are usually very bad at it, unless you're Robert Rodriguez or Steven Soderbergh. I think that, you know, the editor's main job is to be another set of eyes, and the, the editor's main job is to say to the director, that's a bad idea we need to change that you know you need to get rid of that and you know i think walter murch is really good at that you know and 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 richard chu and 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 i think that's why you know people want to work with them and uh yeah i mean that's that's one of the things which which really uh excites me about the editing process and you know like i i i've the editing along with like film criticism is kind of like what I, I concentrated on, you know, when I was at film school yeah. and, and it was definitely the, the part of the process, which I enjoyed the most. And, um, it was for that reason. It was for like finding, uh, ways to use the footage in, in ways that, that, that the director didn't intend, but which, you know, get their point across even better than they had intended, you know? Yeah. That's exciting. Well, yeah, but, and again, speaking to the crane, you know, in the background, they didn't do just one take. Like, it's not an Ed Wood movie. Yeah. They didn't do one take. That was the one that, that Chu sat down and said, no, 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 that one works. Yeah. That's the one that works. And maybe there was something subliminal that spoke to him, and he's mm-hmm. not even aware of, you know, why it did, but it winds up working, and yeah. it adds a whole other other level to everything yeah so i i think it would be fair to say that we highly recommend seeing the conversation yeah and and in addition to chew and everything you know merch he is part of the star wars family not just because of his you know early relationship with lucas but also in later years he uh directed an episode of the clone wars he yes he, he did the general i think that maybe we might have to cover that on a future episode mike yeah, yeah, I think I think that that would be a good idea. I think that's a great idea. Uh, but I think also a great idea is for you to tell everybody where they can reach you online. Uh, well, you can find me on Twitter at Mumbles3K, and you can also find me on my website, CommentaryTrackStars.com, where we do audio commentaries and have various other discussions about uh, movies. In fact, if you go there, you can actually find a commentary for uh, the general, uh, the episode of the Clone Wars that that Merch directed, um, and some other stuff as well. And uh, you can also find me on Trek.fm, where I do a show called Stage Nine, which is about the people who make Star Trek along with you.
That's true. I am on stage nine with you over on Trek.fm. I'm also here on the Nerd Party Network co-hosting Aggressive Negotiations with Matt Rushing. And I am co-hosting Words with Nerds with my pal Craig. And uh, you can find me as Kessel Junkie out there floating in the ether that is known as the Internet. Now, next time on Great Shot Kid, we are going to be looking at the work of another editor of the original Star Wars, Marshall Lucas, when we take a look at the classic film from the 1970s, American Graffiti. <laughs> 